Rusty Quill presents. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. after. Death is much a part of life as living itself. Just to stay alive, we must wreak death upon the land. Plants, animals, bacteria, fungus, mold, all of these things must perish so that we might endure. And we perish too, whether we want to or not, so that these things in turn might also eat. But death occurs on much larger scales as well. Stars die to fill the universe with complex matter, Buildings are raised to make room for new structures, or sometimes to just return some of the Earth back to itself. Incredibly, even abstract concepts like a civilization can die. In today's story, the world of the West Side fairy tales has become a graveyard following some long-off war and the cataclysm that brought it to an end. In this sepulcher of our old society, new life has begun to flourish. The Earth has begun to reclaim itself. Amongst the bones of a now-dead and empty city, our protagonist, a lone soldier finishing out his last orders, pursues a group of men through the rubble. But he is not the only stalker amongst these broken buildings and desolate streets. Some other predator, larger and more ancient than human beings, is hunting the hunter. We'll get to that in a second, however. First, some announcements and this month's recommendations. As possibly a few of you know, I was up until recently part of the Himalaya Network. Due to a lack of professionalism on their part, as well as some questionable business practices, I have parted ways with them permanently. If you have ever signed up for the West Side Fairy Tales Himalaya Plus, please discontinue your subscription immediately. I am no longer affiliated with Himalaya, and you won't be getting any content through that pipeline. I would ask that you switch your membership over to the Patreon if you'd like to continue supporting the West Side Fairy Tales. That out of the way, on to this month's recommendations, which are another book-slash-movie double whammy. This month's literature recommendation is the 1953 novel Night of the Hunter by Davis Grubb. For anybody who doesn't know, Grubb is my favorite author of fiction in general, and also of my favorite book, the title of which you can only learn, by joining our Horror and Lit Club on Facebook, which I'll talk about a little later. Night of the Hunter is based loosely around the real-life murders committed by Harry Powers, who was hanged for killing two widows and three children in West Virginia in 1932. In the novel, the fictional Harry Powell passes himself off as a priest after being released from prison. While he was inside, a cellmate executed for his part in a robbery gone wrong mistakenly told Powell where the money from the robbery might be hidden on his property. Pal, a charismatic and unscrupulous sociopath, passes himself off as a pastor and former prison chaplain and ingratiates himself with the man's widow to get his hands on the money. He marries her and then kills her, but her children, already having sensed something off about the man, flee into the night. Their flight from Pal forms most of the novel's plot and is at times both harrowing and 
Wonderfully comfortable. Sort of a dark Huckleberry Finn vibe, if I had to describe it. The book is absolutely everywhere, and you can get it cheap where you look. The novel itself inspired numerous modern writers, including the daddy of horror himself, Stephen King, and I consider it an absolute must-read for any true crime or high-stakes adventure fans. This month's random horror recommendation is the 1955 adaptation of Night of the Hunter by Charles Lofton and James Aggie. Starring Robert Mitchum as the murderous, misogynistic Powell and Shelley Winters as the widow Harper, the movie is considered amongst the top five films of all time in numerous lists. I really can't stress this enough. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Filmed in black and white, the movie is both expressionist and surrealist at times, mostly after the fall of night when the shadows play over the walls in sharp and imaginative ways. If you take the time to watch it, many of the shots will have you doubting the movie was made more than half a century ago. One of the rare cases of the movie being better than the book, if only because the movie is perfect, Night of the Hunter is an absolute must-see. I wrote that in caps, so I, so I hope my emphasis carries. This is one of my favorite movies, and anybody with a modicum of interest in film should consider this required viewing. I'll leave links to where you can find both the book and film versions of Night of the Hunter in the episode description, so check those out when you get a second. Now, without further ado, today's story. Within as without. Heat radiated off the asphalt time hadn't yet sunk beneath the river. What remained of the bridge lay like strips of rotten flesh over the water, clinging to rusty supports standing in silhouette like the ribs of some great, gutted beast. The city beyond wore the crust of life borne by any dead thing. Structural frames lay at rest as blackened bones amongst the crush of fresh green. Braxton Fajima let himself rest for the first time in days, sucking on a plastic button and hoping the water below would test drinkable. It likely would. It almost always did. What warnings passed among the other soldiers before the blasts had almost all turned out to be false. The water was clean. The soil was healthy. Nature had reclaimed all the lost territory it could find. Birds flocked through skies a deeper blue than Fujima had ever known. The orange clouds of the city had receded as the pollution dampers fell offline, as the lights went out, one by one. It seemed as though the world was trying to forget its odd human experiment. Fujima filled his canteens when the tester on his wrist compact blinked out a bright green okay. No radiation. No parasites. No detectable poisons. He drank deeply of one canteen and let himself relish the feel of the fresh water inside his body. He'd never known thirst like this before the war ended. It was deep inside every cell of his body, a chronic dehydration that had made itself companion to the almost endless hunger. Hunger made him think of the deer he'd killed two weeks before. It had taken him four days to eat most of it. He'd dried some, doing a half-assed but serviceable enough job. Those were wrapped up in plastic scraps in his pack. He'd learned how to do the drawing from a survival guide he'd scavenged from a library, along with an abridged Merc manual and two fiction books he hadn't had the time to open yet. He could only read in the day, and daylight was for walking. He rediscovered the tracks he'd been following for the last few weeks on the other side of the bridge. Crossing it was easier than he'd expected. It looked completely unsafe, but a natural bridge of silt and driftwood had formed in the wreckage, concealed somewhat by the moving water. The other party's footprints were fresh and partially filled, along with the occasional muddy handprints from somebody falling and then righting themselves. The tracks were painfully obvious. He crouched low and slid his rifle from his shoulder to scan the opposite bank for an ambush. He found only trees, and the deep, abiding silence of the new forest. Prince by his feet suggested there were only ten or so left in the party. They'd camped here for the night, leaving their fire to die on its own. Animals had pawed through the ash, looking for the source of the scent left by the molten fat that had dripped into the fire pit. It had rained two days prior, 
a short summer shower that came in around noon, but the ashes were dry and still warm in places. They had one morning's worth of a lead on him, maybe two. Hajima scanned the edges of the encampment and saw the stake holes he knew he'd find. There were only five now, down from ten when he'd started. He cursed under his breath, thinking of what had made the grease beneath the fire. His stomach rumbled. He sat and gnawed a hard strip of venison, chewed it like tobacco, savoring it to stave off the hunger pains. The fat he'd built up gorging on the deer had all but disappeared. He was leaner than he'd ever been in his life, and something had been coming alive in him in the months since he'd set out on this hunt. A sort of coldness in his skull. A heat in his neck when he held his rifle that he'd never felt before. When he looked at the world, he saw it. Every minute detail, every slight motion. Something stirred in the trees ahead of him, opposite the river and far left of where the party's tracks led into the ruined city. There was so little motion that he believed he'd seen none at all, but his rifle was up and cracking fire toward the subtle shifting before he could think. Something screamed, an inhuman noise that froze Fujima in place. Foliage crunched and crashed, and he saw the entire top of a tree shake. He ran, shuttling himself through the jungle gym of rusted beams and old steel wires embedded in the natural silt footbridge. The other party had rifles. Maybe they could use them, and maybe they couldn't, but they wouldn't need to be good shots if they caught him in this bottleneck. Whatever he'd hit didn't sound human, but shot-up humans rarely sounded like themselves. Nothing he could hear followed him as he rushed through streets so choked with weeds they could rightly be called meadows. Worn boots made little noise on the pavement, but he stepped lightly anyway, trying not to brush the thick-leaved vines hanging low from the eaves of the closest building. He stopped looking down the street, a long stretch of open area with few safe places to hide. Without thinking, he ducked into the building, feet crunching over pebbles of broken glass. He pushed himself into the shadows and entwined his body to give the rifle a resting spot on his knee. His eyes were as coldly reflective as the rifle scope, the glass on the ground, the weather-worn shards in the window. He waited, unblinking. It passed the door a second later, lithe and long, a shadow against the bright daylight. Powerful shoulders moved it almost soundlessly over the same pavement he'd been standing on seconds before. Then it was gone. Too many tracks to follow, Fujima thought. The rifle was in his shoulder and pointed at the door, but there was nothing to shoot. The thing had gone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. He waited another hour until leaving the cramped reception area where he'd taken refuge. 
There was still time to move, but not much. There was nowhere to run if the thing came back, and nothing that quiet and big ate vegetables to live. But if the other party turned back on their own tracks, he didn't have the firepower to hold them all off in a small space like this. So, he walked. Carefully at first, his heart beating hard in his chest. He cursed at himself to be calm, knowing a hard beating heart meant burning calories. He'd have to eat the rest of the jerky tonight if he expected not to be dizzy or plagued by headaches the next day. He could feel the earliest signs of them already. The only positive thought was that large predators meant large game. Somewhere in the sepulcher, there was something to eat. Plenty of blood dotted the pavement where the thing had passed. Vegema couldn't imagine how badly hurt the creature might be if it was still lithe and quiet after losing so much blood. He followed the tracks with his eyes and then his mind, making a mental note of the way they curved away into the buildings. The thing had taken a heading away from both Fujima and the obvious tracks of the other party. His path lay to the east, and the things to the north, it seemed. Take yourself far from me, wandering soul. Fujima sang under his breath to the thing. Along that path lay a honeycomb city of broken windows and black, hidden places. The sunlight wasn't strong enough to break those shadows. The old snatch of song stayed with Fujima often these days. He sang the rest quietly. The light out here is fading. The place where you lived in my heart is cold. There was nobody to sing the accompanying verse, and he left the spot empty. He sang the rest anyway, watching a light mist roll off the tops of the buildings as the sun began to set. He camped on the third floor of what might once have been an office building, the dull and cubicle-filled sort he might have worked in if it weren't for the war. Several floors were missing from the northern half of the structure, as though somebody had carved out a chunk of it with a giant ice cream scoop. He recognized burns from an old explosion where the weather hadn't worn them away and thought this floor might have made a perfect sniper's nest. He'd chosen the building for the vantage it gave him over the central boulevard where he'd found fresh tracks in the thick forest of ankle-high mushrooms. There were old tracks there as well, worn spaces from multiple trips. If there was a larger encampment, he was getting close, which wasn't good. The party he'd been tracking could be taken care of with planning, but all that went out the window if he ran into another dozen armed men. But that was a problem for tomorrow. Night held its own dangers. He fiddled with the screen on his wrist until it activated the simple utility light. That and the water tester were the only things of any real use anymore. The digital compass worked only sometimes. The GPS and communication suite had gone out before the war had even ended. If he ever ran across another soldier out here, the device would prove his identity. If, when, he died, it would send out a signal marking his location until the little radioactive isotope that powered it died. The half-life on the battery was something like 50 years, though he hadn't gotten a new battery in it since before the comms and the GPS died. He didn't bother with the math on how long his little arm-mounted grave might continue sending out its lonely SOS. He'd long since turned off the notifications about just such signals in his vicinity. It was too depressing. He used the light to work strips of piss-poor deer leather into wonky snare traps that would pull damaged parts of the office down if tripped. Possibly they'd just break, but the office was still full of loud things to tumble over. Old cans and rusted hulks of computer towers, staplers and desks and drawers. He figured this place had been evacuated early, maybe even near the beginning of the fighting. If he had a map, or any real idea where he'd wandered to after getting the final order from his captain, he'd know instantly. There had been a lot of southward marching since he'd left the 109th near Syracuse. 
Some of the subsidies he'd passed through still had their own neighborhood identities, names he recognized from news reports and movies when he was a kid. But after a while, after the rot set in, there was nothing more than the same old street names here and there. Vine, Maine, Martin Luther King Jr., Washington, North, South, 14th. Arteries and veins running through organs that no longer had any purpose. Empty avenues of blackened blood coursing through a bloated, blackened corpse. This is what everybody had called the city. Capital C. Nobody knew the proper name of the city when he was alive, and nobody cared now that it was no more. The subcities, the neighborhoods, they had names. Community identities, after a fashion, but the city itself was a heartless tangle of brick and steel that left behind no mourners. Fujima woke to the sound of dragging steel. The noises were tentative, cautious. Dark had settled in full and deep, though no night was truly dark now that the city was gone. Unless there were clouds, the stars formed a band of light across the sky so blazingly brilliant it still stunned him they'd never been visible in his younger life. Blue-gray light filled the interior of the building, making a charcoal etching of the interior. Shapes grew and shifted from what he knew they were. His brain demanded he turn on the utility light, but he kept it off, letting the sound move closer. The black of the darkest shadows seemed to pulse and roll as his eyes tried to focus, as his brain strained to make sense of them. He saw faces in the black, human and blank-eyed, that shifted and faded and became more familiar shapes. Two computer screens on the far side of the room had become a set of square glasses on the face of a ghost just inches from his face. His mind made a clawed hand from the cracks in a window, a raising gun from the subtle shift in a strand of leather beside his cheek. Fujima almost didn't believe he saw the eyes when they opened. There was no color to them, aside from the faintest tinge of blue, a cousin to the starlight falling on the abandoned office equipment around him. They grew larger, to the size of the palms of his hands. His heart beat against his ribcage. Sweat rolled down his face. The thing in front of him breathed and Fujima brought the rifle to bear on it, slowly. It was a simple, bolt-action 308 with a telescopic sight. A single round to fire at this range if somebody charged at him. Then he would only have an 18-inch bayonet in his own body. There was a sound of dragging steel again, soft, and then the sudden crash of something massive and metallic striking the ground. The thing didn't scream this time, it didn't make a sound at all. It was simply gone. The weight of its passing felt only in the stiff current of cold air rushing to fill the void it had left. In half a second, Fujima heard the sound of a hunk of metal smashing into stone, and then nothing but the ring of that echoing again and again into the empty night. Hey there, Westsiders. I hope you're enjoying another free, independently produced episode of The Westside Fairy Tales. While The Westside Fairy Tales will always remain free and available to the public, there are some things you can do to support the podcast and keep great horror fiction independent. If you have a moment, consider buying a bit of merch from the Westside Fairy Tales merch store at westsidefairytales.com merch. Get yourself a t-shirt, a hoodie, or even a mug bearing our logo and show the world just how much you love hanging out on the West Side once a month. If you hate hearing me talk in the middle of episodes, or ads in general, consider paying just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales for early release advertisement-free episodes of the regular story episodes and the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episodes. For five bucks, you also get PDFs of the monthly stories laid out just like a real novel and access to the Behind the Story episodes, where I go in detail about the method behind creating the month's story and any inspirations I have. You get even more content and free merchandise at the higher levels, so please consider supporting the Westside Fairy Tales today. Now, Back to our story.
Fujima woke with a start into a gray morning. Birds were his alarm clock now, and the first of them started singing when the morning dew boiled off where it had settled. He begrudgingly chewed the last of his jerky, washing it down with most of his water reserves. He assured himself, not for the first time, that where there was green, there was water, and that where there were predators, there was prey. A survey of his campsite told him the story of the previous night. A filing cabinet he'd attached nothing at all to had fallen over beside his bedroll, just in front of the door to the closet where he'd slept. He found the snare that did catch three floors down by the front door. The maybe five-kilo computer terminal he'd tied to the leather had disintegrated after impacting the wall beside the door. The snare itself was gone entirely. Half a day of walking took him through the bowl-shaped remains of a college campus, where the founding fathers sat in a tight circle of moss amidst rows of long, empty concrete benches. Bronze had run to black so that he could barely make out their features. The plaque on the marble plinth had rusted off and fallen face down on the ground. He wasn't interested in reading it. Fujima tightened his grip on the gunstock when he found the remnants of his quarry's encampment. Crude butchery remained of a middle-aged man, his body opened from calf to neck along his backside. The worthwhile meat there, Fujima could see even from what was left of him that he was terribly thin and unhealthy, had been stripped away and cooked on the nearby fire. He touched the coals, warm, still smoldering in places. No stake holes marked the ground of this encampment, and he wondered if the remaining prisoners were simply too weak to try to run. His own stomach grumbled, and he felt the first nasty, sweaty rush of endorphins as his body started eating itself. A tentative queasiness settled over him, and he steadied himself against a marble pillar that held up the steel awning over the campsite. A nearby sign named this place as the Adelaide Stevenson Reading Garden. He found the apple trees a short while later, as if by providence. The walk that preceded their discovery passed in the sort of haze he knew meant the first early roots of starvation were draining him. His vision swam and fell back into focus, and his legs worked more by memory than by intention. The first apple nearly smacked him in the head. He'd walked into the grove while just tracking on instinct. His quarry had once moved softly, taking care to keep their traces to a minimum. This other party's former pursuers had likely given up the ghost long before Fujima had stumbled across their trail. Much like these trees, he had discovered them on accident, but he had heard the screaming, and then he had seen the tattoo. Fujima's mouth watered when his fingers brushed the skin of the apple. It was the hard-skinned green kind, though when he took it the thing felt marshmallow soft. He bit deep into it nearly passed out from the pain of vomiting. It was utterly rancid, so rotten the insides of the skin were nearly liquid. Fujima felt his breath catch in his chest and looked at the space between his hands. The grass here was short and wide patches. It slipped out of focus and then burst into a series of grid-shaped colors, alternating ripples of sight and sound. Oh, shit, Fujima heard himself say. Something squalled in the distance and he pushed himself to his feet. The ground felt blue beneath him, tight as a drumhead and reverberating with the deeper motions of the earth below. Bark on the trees shifted and split into a million rolling scales, all glittering gold and red like a roulette wheel. There was a louder noise and Fujima moved toward it. The air parted around him like a curtain rolling in and out as waves of barely audible orange and purple. There was a taste to it, like copper, that filled his nose and forced its way up into the space behind his eyes. He found a space in the grove of apple trees where the grass was matted down with blood, thick and black as pudding. A deer lay dying in the clearing, hooves flailing beneath a torn body. It had run a long way before falling there, finally dropping when its intestines caught in a pile of stray branches beneath a dead apple tree. 
Pajima fell on the deer as though he were a rock dropped from a great height. A mindless thing devoid of purpose. Devoid of anything but its own self and the heartless physics of momentum. He crashed upon the deer like a wave, tearing at it with his bare teeth. Fujima woke in the clearing. Deep night had come and was on him fully, so that again all he could see were the faintest traces of blue. Odd shapes made worse by the clinging effects of the poisoned apple on his mind. But before him, he saw again the eyes of the thing that had found him in the ruined building. They hung over the shapeless carcass of the deer, over the sound of thick teeth tearing muscle. The space around them was a rolling miasma of black and green and blue stripes, all falling over and through each other like cards in the hands of a cheating gambler. Low, throaty growling came from the thing, and then from Fujima himself. He realized he had crawled onto his hands and feet, raising his back like a wolf. The thing seemed not to care, ignoring him and going back to its meal. Fujima woke to singing birds. Blood had died to a tacky scum over his face and hands, and he was terribly thirsty, but his stomach was full. He could still hear the faintest apple poison ringing in his ears. It was a dull, deep note that lived at the tails of its own tone, a sound just shy of silence. What remained of the deer lay in the grass beside him. The grass itself had risen in the night no longer pressed down by death and those that fed on the dying. Fujima could feel a sore spot in his gums where he'd lost a tooth, probably from pulling at the raw meat with just his bare teeth. What remained of the meat, and little remained, were colorless scraps of connective tissue and red smears of tripe. Its bones rose amongst the emerging grasses, so clean in places they glowed. Lines of red ants had already found the corpse and were polishing away what remained. Birds darted in and picked at bits of hair and what thin facial flesh hadn't been eaten. What they left would go to the ground, forgotten amongst this grove of poisoned apples. Fujima cleaned his face and hands with some of his remaining water, naked to his waist and steaming slightly in the growing summer heat. He drank the rest and stood, finding the road the tracks, and his quarry soon after. Five men remained of the larger party he'd been tracking. He could only imagine where the others had gone. There was no indication they were hidden away in the foliage growing through the sidewalks. Nor could they be in the buildings beside the road. From a distance of maybe 500 meters, he scanned the windows and every other dark place beside the people. There was nothing. He watched them walk the last of the prisoners, a woman and two children, several paces ahead of them. The woman's steps were hesitant and weak, her arms and legs a shade shy of skeletal. The children seemed much better. Probably they didn't have such bad calorie deficiencies given the same rations. Their little faces scanned the buildings with wide eyes, looking for something they'd been told to be afraid of. Fujima let them travel out of sight, waiting for at least twenty minutes until moving, expecting any rear ambush they'd set up would get tired of waiting and leave their hides to catch up with the group. Nothing. He pushed himself to his feet and moved down the road, taking each step carefully. The buildings here were ancient, but well-built. Uneven bricks paved the road beneath his feet, overgrown with moss so thick it drank the noise of every footstep. He caught their shadows moving up a wall in a pass ahead and found a building that would look in that direction. He quickened his pace, running long and low over the street until he was climbing through the pitch-black floors using his utility light. He could hear some screaming from the people, desperate men barking orders at somebody, each other perhaps. The woman screamed something back at them. They were clearing out a tiny space between two buildings on the opposite side of the street and down some from where Fujima had set up. The men were scrawny, heavily bearded, and sported old plague sores around their eyes and mouths. The women and children had clean skin, as far as he could see. 
Pajima dropped his pack in front of the window and took aim. The source of the argument was plainly clear. The men were selecting which of the children they were going to butcher and the woman wasn't happy with either choice. If they had brought the corpse in the university garden, the meat at least, they'd have had a few days more of food. The wastefulness was uncharacteristic, Fijima thought. Then he saw the men drive a stake between the cobbles. They tied the child to the stake and then set up a hide in the cleared area. Bait, Fijima thought. Now he knew where the rest of the men had gone. He thought of the eyes in the dark the past two nights, the long stretch of open street leading into this sub-city, the body left to rot in the sun, only half eaten. He moved his sight over the leg of the man staking down the child. The little girl was dirt-streaked and half-dazed from fear, maltreatment, and malnutrition. Fajima pulled the trigger. Blood misted the cobbles behind the man, and his ruined femur collapsed under the strain of his weight. He dropped the automatic rifle he'd been carrying on the ground and grabbed his leg, screaming. The other men began firing blindly into the building nothing coming close to Fujima. He left his rifle perched on the bag and lay back on the floor, watching the occasional stray round knock chunks off the ceiling. The gunfire slowed, and he heard the men screaming to each other, clips and phrases about covering this or watching that. He pulled a thin fiber-optic cord from the device on his wrist and bent it so he could see over the rim of the window. A grainy image of the men cowering in their hide filled the screen. One of them crawled toward the wounded man with a determined look on his face. Fujima rose, shouldered the rifle, and fired a round through the left eye of one of the men in the hide. His face turned to dust and scraps of bone that flew into the open mouth of the man behind him. That one fell down below where Fujima could see. He racked another round and shot the crawling man, who had stopped moving forward on his belly to scan the buildings with his rifle. Fujima shot him in the heart and the man's body deflated slowly until he looked like he was sleeping, with his rifle as a pillow. The woman screamed. Vegema turned the scope in time to see one of the two remaining men dart from the hide and snatch the boy off the ground. Rifle in hand, he sprinted off down the road past where Vegema could see. Vegema sighed, stood, and shouldered his pack and his rifle. It took him several minutes to descend the building. He approached the place where he'd killed the men, rifle raised, cutting the alley into thin slices as eye ate step by careful step. The man with the shot leg was still dying. The girl he'd staked to the ground by her wrist sat patiently with her hands behind her back, waiting for whatever was going to happen to just be over with. She looked at Fujima, and he put a finger to his lips. Daddy! The man on the ground yelled, trying to crawl closer to his gun. His face had gone slack and ashen, but his lungs worked well enough. He turned toward Fujima and opened his mouth to scream. Fujima clucked his tongue and planted his boot on the man's chest. The man's next words were little more than a hiccup. His hand slapped at Fujima's pants leg as Fujima pushed his foot up and down pumping the blood through the man's chest and out through his leg. He didn't make another sound. The girl watched with cold, sad eyes as the man died. Jalen! Called a man from inside the hide. Jalen, is it out there? What the hell is going on? Jalen! The woman fell into sight and onto the cobbles, yelping when the bricks scraped her hands raw. Fujima brought the sight to his eye slowly, and when the last man, Danny, he figured, stepped out, he shot him through the temple. It was a better and faster death than maybe he deserved. Fujima looked over the woman and child. Her eyes did the same, catching on the screen on his wrist, then taking a hard second look at his equipment. Are you with the military? She asked. She had her hands up in front of her but she was edging closer to the girl on her knees. There is no military, Fujima replied. He pointed at the girl. 
Is she yours? The woman shook her head. Her mother died before we crossed the river, the woman said. The little girl began to sob. I'm a friend of the family. We were headed for... Fajima raised a hand. I know where you're from, he said. Don't care where you're going. He walked past both of them, scanning the streets ahead for the last man. He'd seen enough through the scope alone to know that was the one with the tattoo. Take what you can off the dead ones and go west. There's folk past the mountains taking in strays. She maybe said something else. He didn't stay behind to listen. But after a while, he could hear her and the girl falling in behind him. They stayed at a distance, feet softer on the stones than even his. Fajima's breath caught in his chest. The buildings fell away after a turn in the road and he found himself staring at the ocean. A breeze caught him in the face and he could smell the salt of it. The last man, the one with the tattoo, was screaming on the beach. The boy hung limp from his arms, not dead, but probably unconscious. A clean, heartless sort of feeling washed away the months of stress and starvation. Fujima approached the last man slowly. He was yelling at somebody who wasn't there, another party that was supposed to meet him. He said he was on time. He said it wasn't fair. Fujima looked over the beach and saw nothing that suggested anybody had been here for months, maybe years. The way the sand kept its secrets, perhaps nobody had ever been here at all. They were a dozen paces apart when the man finally realized how close he'd gotten, spinning around and trying to get his rifle up to shoot at Fujima. Fujima didn't even aim, just shot the man from the hip. The bullet passed within an inch of the boy's swinging head and punched a hole beside the man's throat. Chunks of vertebrae and skin spilled onto the sand. The man dropped like a brick. The woman screamed and ran past Fujima, snatching the boy up with both hands. She said his name and caressed his face, trying to wake him. Who? The man gasped. Fujima meant to answer him, but a cold ugly chill rolled up his spine. He turned back to the piles of reeds growing at the edge of the sandbar from where he'd came. The thing that had been hunting him, them, emerged. It strode casually, its massive forepaws carrying it forward in regal silence. In the interceding years since somebody had freed it from its last cage, it had eaten luxuriously. Tiger, the girl said pointing at the big cat. Its head seemed nearly half the size of Fujima's entire torso, a lithe box of orange and black muscle and teeth, marred only by an ugly wound channel running through its nose and up the front of its skull. The bullet Fujima had fired had nearly killed it, but it would not die. Not this thing. This thing would never die. It bared its teeth and growled, a deep, soft, sound. Fujima lowered his rifle and drew his knife. He stepped backward and over the bleeding man. The woman and children breathed as quietly as they could, but both he and the animal could hear the bone deepness of their panic. The tiger darted forward and Fujima rose to his feet, screaming and waving the knife. The beast stopped, licking its lips and pacing back and forth over the sand. Fujima kept his eyes on it kneeling and taking the man's arm up in his hands. He dropped his gaze only long enough to find the tattoo. Then he sliced the printed skin away and stepped back, holding the scrap of flesh in his hand. The tiger stepped forward, sniffed the dying man, and then grabbed his head in its jaws. The man moaned and then was gone into the reeds. In the last second before he disappeared, Fujima saw the eyes of two smaller tigers. Kittens, glaring at him from the shadows. The exchange ended and he found himself alone on the beach. The woman and children had run at some point, and he could see the specks of them moving north. Perhaps they'd wise up when the terror faded and turned west, like he told them. He'd come from the north, and there was nothing there anybody wanted to find. More buildings, more cold, more death. 
black sickness, and what dared to live. He sat on the beach, listening to the bones of the city howling as the ocean-born wind blew through them. He found a lighter in his pack and burned the strip of skin with a feather tattoo, watching it turn and twist and burst into purple sparks and smoke. He tossed it onto the wet sand and watched it finish burning. It wasn't the last, of course, but it was one closer to being finished. Another small footstep, closer to the true end of the war. The last drop in a rainstorm of blood that had fallen over the country. He rubbed his own arm, wondering what color he might burn if somebody stripped his skin someday. A thought for a more complex time, he figured. These days were simple. He lay out on the sand, using his pack as a pillow. In the morning, birds would wake him, as they always did now, and he would continue to pick his way through the bones of the city. Like the ants who finished the remains of the deer, he would find the scraps of flesh that still clung to this dead beast, and he would polish them away. He would render this place empty again, or free, at least, of what had damned it, consigned to an eternity of unblemished shining, dead beyond death, within as without. He parted his lips and sang for the tiger, hoping it could hear. Hey there, Westsiders. Well, that was within as without. What did you think of it? Have you ever dwelled at length on what might become of our civilizations in time, or what it might be like to wander through a dead metropolis on some unknown mission? Have you ever been chased by a tiger? <laughs> Have you ever been chased by anything? Let us know in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. The Horror and Lit Club is a place where fans of the show, some call themselves Westsiders or even Westies now, can talk to each other about the show, the recommendations, and anything else that comes to mind. The only real rules are don't be a dick to each other and try to keep your posts focused on horror and literature. But even that last rule is pretty soft, so come on by. Just search for the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. Ladies and gentlemen of the West Side Fairy Tales, I am once again asking for your financial support. <laughs> for real though, each episode of the West Side Fairy Tales takes something in the ballpark of 40 plus hours of work. Most of that is writing, reading, rereading, rewriting, and editing again and again until the stories are just where we want them. On top of that is the additional time sink of recording, editing, and all the miscellaneous extra things like paying taxes, marketing, and trying to untangle the constantly evolving mess of being fucked with by hosting networks. I'm only sort of kidding about that last part. Anyway, there's a lot of ways to support our work here, and the easiest by far is to just buy yourself a nice new official logo mug from the merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. Like I said during the promo break, we have plenty of options, and it's a uh, great way to support the podcast and get a little something you can hold in your hands in return. For those of you who hate advertisements on podcasts, for just a dollar, you can get rid of those and not have to worry about hearing them uh, again, <laughs> at least uh, on the West Side Fairy Tales. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and subscribe at the $1 level. That'll give you access to an RSS feed you can plug into most any podcatcher to listen to the special episodes at your convenience. For $5, you get access to monthly ebooks of the episodes, as well as an entire backlog of story PDFs from the last season and a half, as well as access to the exclusive Behind the Story episodes, in which I discuss the creation of the month's story and talk at length about a million other things that kind of, sort of, inspired me to write it. And, of course, the most important thing you can do to support us is to share this show. Don't sweat leaving a review on Apple, but if you could share this episode on Reddit, on Facebook or Twitter groups, or even in forums you're a member of, it helps the show immensely. So if you like the West Side Fairy Tales, please, please, please share this episode with the world. Next month, we bring you the story of a moving crew tasked with emptying the contents of a huge old house 
on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. What seems at first to be an exhausting, if simple, job becomes anything but, however, as the cobweb-filled home isn't as abandoned as the men have been led to believe. I hope you'll join us next month for our story, The Move. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.